We invite you to turn to the 41st chapter of Genesis. We're continuing in our story of Joseph. We come to maybe the most dramatic part of it, in one sense. It's all dramatic. We come to one of the more dramatic parts. We will read the whole of the chapter. It is a lengthy chapter, but I think it's interesting enough that you'll be able to pay attention. But to help you do that, let me just remind you that this is actually God's word. It's not simply a fun story. It's not simply a dramatic instance. But it is, as we heard this morning in Sunday school, a living word. It will do something to you today. So come to it humbly, come to it expecting that to happen by the Spirit of God. We read from the word of Moses and the word of the Lord these words. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And look, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, beautiful and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And look, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows in the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And look, seven ears of grain, plump and beautiful, were growing on one stalk. And look, after them spread seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and look, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. He sent for and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. They were told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my my sins today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the banker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, look, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good, seven ears withered thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dream that Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. Seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. 
The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of the good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over all my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphanath Paniah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. He gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the field around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. They were said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, do what he says to you. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Friends, the, the grass withers outside, the flowers fade. This word does not. 
but it gives life, it endures forever. Let's pray and ask God's life-giving word to sprout in our hearts today. Father, we ask that your spirit would illuminate our minds, our hearts, our ears to receive your word this morning. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to love. Show us Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, this is a really dramatic story. It's as good as anything uh, Dickens or Shakespeare writes. In the morning, where's Joseph? He's in the pit. He has a scraggly beard, rough clothes, probably got holes in his socks if he had socks. Obscure, forgotten, foreign slave in a dungeon. By evening, he is prime minister. By evening, he's president. By evening, he is head under Pharaoh of the superpower of the day. Prison to penthouse in a few hours. It's obviously God's doing. He tells us that in verse 32 even. The matter has been firmly decided by God. He'll make it happen. He will do it. So as we look at this chapter, look at this, this resurrection of a sort, this raising up, we see it occur really in kind of four steps. We're going to look at four steps this morning. Look first at the, at the, the step of the king, the troubled king, if you will, the troubled Pharaoh. This is the first eight verses here. Pharaoh, ruler, president of the U.S., basically. Large, rich, powerful country. Absolute monarch, tyrant. What he says goes. Most of his subjects worship him as a demigod, almost divine. He's referred to in Egyptian literature as the son of God. The son of the sun god, Ra or Re. Peak of earthly might. But at the peak of his power, at the highest position across the world at that time, basically, he has troubles. The Son of God on earth is troubled. He has two dreams. Just as a side note, does that sound familiar? Somebody having two dreams? Sound like a, something you've seen before in this story? Joseph had two dreams back in chapter 37. In fact, Joseph interpreted two dreams in the last chapter. When you start to look at this story of Joseph, you begin to realize there's a lot of pears, not the fruit. A lot of pairs, a lot of twos, a lot of doubles. There's twos everywhere. Joseph has been up twice. He's been raised up twice. He's been down in the pit twice. He's had two robes. He has one with, of course, his father gave it to him, and then he had one with Potiphar. And they both were taken and torn. He's been in two prisons. Why are these twos? Two, 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 two. What? Why? It's God's way of showing and saying, this is really happening. It's an underline. They didn't have a highlighter back in the day. So this is God's way of highlighting it will surely be. You see it in the New Testament too. Whenever Christ says, amen, amen, truly, truly, we pass those by because we don't think that's really important. But it's Christ's way of saying, yes, yes, this will happen. Truly, truly, my words are real and legitimate. Therefore, as you read the saga of Joseph, you really begin to see that God, the powerful God, is doing sure and certain things in this guy's life. And the same good and powerful God is doing sure and certain things in your life as well. But Pharaoh had these dreams. 
You know the dreams. You, you read the dreams. We're actually told them twice. Another pair. We get a, little, a few more details the second time. Pharaoh has two dreams. First dream. He's standing at the River Nile. The River Nile seen by Egyptians as almost a divine river. A river that gives life even in times of famine. The source of all Egypt's wealth and power. And there are cows in the river. You know, that you ever go to Egypt, you ever go to the Nile, they, they still do this today. The cows stand in the river. They stand in the river because it's cool. They stand in the river because the insects don't go there. They wade and they cover their bodies in water. Cows are weird. They eat the green plants at the edge of the river. Pharaoh sees seven fat, beautiful cows. The cow was the symbol of the goddess Isis. It was a sacred animal. Isis, the goddess of the earth, the goddess of the harvest. He sees seven fat cows. They're plump. Now, your view of beauty may be different, but for the Egyptians, plump was pretty. But then there are seven other cows. They're ugly. They're skinny. They're thin. They, it's a weird, almost like a horror film. They eat the fat cows. They don't get any bigger, Pharaoh tells us. It's weird. In the second dream, he has seven ears of corn. Plump ears of corn, we're told. Beautiful, good, fruitful. And then something happens. Seven ugly, thin ears of corn. Blighted by the east wind. The Egyptians worship the sun. But the problem is the sun, the sun god Ra, it seems like he's not doing his job. The seven thin ears of corn, they swallow up and destroy the good ears of corn, and they're still thin. All these things turn against Pharaoh, and he has to go to a young Jewish boy to find the answer. God humbles this man. He says, if you want truth, you have to go to a slave. That's the message across the Old Testament. If you want truth, there's one place on earth that has it, Jerusalem, God's people. Pharaoh sends for all his magicians. They can't interpret the dream. We're told that four times. The son of God on earth, Pharaoh, cannot figure out his dreams. The people he hires can't figure it out. I mean, you, re, you listen to these dreams. They're not that challenging in some ways to interpret. That, 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 they're not that difficult. You would think a group of professional dream explainers could at least make up a good story. Maybe they didn't want to pass on bad news to Pharaoh. Maybe God blinded them. They couldn't understand. They're at a complete loss. And he says in verse 19, I had never seen such ugly, disgusting cows in all the land of Egypt. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare on the Nile. It's foreboding. It's scary. We have in God's providence a troubled king. But secondly, we have God who has prepared a servant for this moment. Not just a king who's troubled. We have a servant who's prepared. Finally, the king's cupbearer remembers Joseph. Verse 9. Literally, he says, Pharaoh, I, I remember my sin. I forgot this guy. Two long years have passed. But in a situation where nobody can explain the dream, he remembers somebody who can explain dreams, who interpreted his own dream in the baker's dream. So we're told in verse 14, Pharaoh calls Joseph, he gets shaved, he gets a new cloth, he takes a bath maybe, and he comes from the dungeon to Pharaoh's side. 
Every detail of Joseph's life has brought him to this very point. The betrayal by his brothers, his being cast into prison, even the amnesia of the cupbearer for two long years has been ordained by God. We mentioned it last week. If Pharaoh had remembered, if the cupbearer had told Pharaoh immediately, Pharaoh wouldn't have cared. But two years later, when Pharaoh needs somebody who can interpret dreams, then the cupbearer remembers. He has been prepared. How did Joseph get all this wisdom to interpret dreams? How did he get all this maturity? He gets it through his suffering. It's in fact the preparation, the schoolhouse of God for every Christian is so often through suffering. I mean, think about it. If I were to ask you, if I were to ask you to close your eyes and you know, nobody's looking except for me, of course, that's what they do in churches, right? Close your eyes, bow your head. If I were to ask you, how many of you want to be godly? I'm sure every hand would be up here. If I were to ask you, do you want to be wise, be a wise person, of course your hand would go up. But if we had a soft piano playing or a nice guitar strumming in the background and your eyes were closed, the mood was set, and I asked you, how many of you want to suffer? Hmm? How many of us want to be afflicted in our lives? Basic principle of the Christian life. Glory through cross. Exaltation through humiliation. We're told that even our Savior learned obedience through suffering. And Joseph has matured. He's put on spiritual bulk. He has patiently suffered. He has trusted He has grown as a person. He has become more competent. That's part of God's purpose in making his sheep pass through the fire, pass through the flood. And notice we see this most supremely in verse 16. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I mean, Pharaoh talks to this slave. You can imagine the power dynamic that today we we, we would be all over the power difference between Pharaoh, the mighty man, this poor Hebrew slave. And Pharaoh says, I've heard of you that you can interpret dreams. And, and Joseph could say, of course, yes, I, I can do it. It's me. I'm the guy. I'm competent. Here's my resume. Pharaoh dangles before Joseph an enticing temptation. Do you see the hook? The hook is for Joseph to say, yes, I am. I am the master explainer. I am the wise one. I can fill your need. Here's the door to ambition. Here's the door of promotion to success, to advancement, all the things that red-blooded Americans want to grow, to get better, to be higher, to have more. But look at the first words that Joseph says to Pharaoh. I cannot do it. Literally, in the Hebrew, not in me. Not in me. Not in me. It's an explosive Self-humbling, God-exalting denial. Pharaoh says to the slave, you can interpret dreams. Joseph says, no, I cannot. I cannot. For Joseph, God's first. He says, God. Notice confidence. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph combines in one man what seems like such low self-esteem, I can't do it, with the great God confidence. He will do it. This is the Christian life, friends. I can't do it. He is great to do it. 
a lot of folks attack Christians for, you know, always being kind of mopey and dopey and saying, oh, I'm a sinner. You know, that's, that's a really negative way of looking at yourself. You need to go and really uh, get your head screwed on right. You need to really realize that you're a, you're a great person and God's giving you all these things and you can do it. Joseph says, not in me, but in God. Low self-esteem is not meant to be your final position. Low self-esteem looks to God and gets his esteem. And that is worth everything. That's worth everything in the world. Joseph has been prepared. For him, God is first. And he interprets the dreams. He does it clearly. He does it persuasively. He predicts. I mean, think about this. He predicts the next 14 years in Egyptian history without hesitation. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Uh, He's humble, he's wise, he's God-honoring. And then look what he does. Then look what he does. Beginning in verse 33, he doesn't just interpret the dream. It's it's really funny. He doesn't interpret the dream. He, He gives political advice. He gives socioeconomic counsel. He sets out a four plan, a four point practical plan. Here is points. First, you need a national organizer. You need somebody to deal with the emergency. Second, you need local commissioners. You need local local governors. Third, perhaps the hardest thing, uh, certainly for us, raise taxes by 20%. Joseph says to Pharaoh, read my lips, plenty of new taxes, 20% increase. And then finally, you need storage silos. He proposes a a revolutionary Egyptian political program, an economic program. This Hebrew slave, all the business scholars will tell you, this is a great, pragmatic, wonderful, deadline-focused, point-by-point plan. It's realistic. And yet it's challenging. I mean, the funny thing is, you have this man prepared, and yet... Third, we see from the troubled king and the prepared servant, we see that the the servant gets promoted. There's unparalleled promotion in this text, beginning in verse 37 all the way through verse 45. Joseph is quickly promoted. Now, the historians tell us that at this point in time, the Egyptian empire was ruled by a dynasty known as the Hiskos. They were foreign kings. They came to Egypt. They ruled about 200 years. They were Semitic people. Sometimes they promoted fellow Semites. In other words, this pharaoh would come from a sort of similar background as Joseph might have. There's nothing, therefore, inherently absurd in the thought of a foreigner being promoted to prime minister. But it's still remarkable. Pharaoh has to have faith in the word of Joseph. Because here's the deal. There's no famine at this point in time. Everything's looking great. There's no sign of a famine. There won't be a sign of a famine for seven years. The economy will boom. The GDP is going to grow for seven years. It's going to be great. No inflation. But what's fascinating is Pharaoh accepts what Joseph says. He asks his other cabinet members, hey, can we find somebody like this guy who's wise in whom is God's spirit? No. He says, you're the guy. Joseph may regret speaking up, but, but he, he, uh, he's the guy. He's the, he's the one chosen. He says, hey, appoint somebody who's wise. You're the wise guy. Do it. And then he says, fascinatingly, in verse uh, 39 and 40, he says, everybody will submit to your orders. He's given power over the country. 
Verse 41 to 43, there's a public ceremony. He's invested with office. He is appointed before the whole court. He gets a cool gold chain. He gets a new robe. He gets the signet ring of Pharaoh. He gets the second chariot in the land. There's a parade tour. All the population comes out and bows down and kneels before Joseph. Make way for Joseph. In fact, in verse 43, this command to bow the knee, it's the same the same command used today in Egypt, the camel drivers, when they need their camel to bow so people can get off, they say this very word, bow the knee. And the camel bows and you can get off. If you ever go, you ever go to Egypt, you can, you can have that happen to you. And then in verse 44, Pharaoh says, without your consent, nobody will do anything. They won't lift a hand. They won't lift a foot. He's given an Egyptian name. He marries a daughter of the Egyptian aristocracy. He's pinching himself. And, of course, astonishing because he had been given a dream at the very beginning of his life as a young adolescent, a young boy. He had dreamed people would bow down to him. It seems so silly, and yet it's happening now. Everybody's bowing down to him. He's moved from a nobody to the most influential person in the land. But finally, we see in this text, unlimited provision. Verse 46 to verse 57. He's been promoted, now he provides. He, he's energetic. He implemented new policy. His four-point plan, he does it. He travels through Egypt. He collects the food. People pay the taxes. I, that's astonishing itself. He was busy. He, he built the phylos. He stores up grain. Egypt, for centuries, was the breadbasket of the Mediterranean. Rome depended in the days of the Roman Empire. It depended on Egypt. If the grain did not arrive from Egypt every year, every season, riots would happen. And so Egypt, in that day as well, was prosperous. Seven years of plentiful harvest. Verse 49, perhaps, is the most interesting verse in, in part. It tells us that they could not measure all the grain. We know about Egypt, that they were as bureaucratic as the DMV, the IRS. They were as bureaucratic as our bureaucracy. They were as devoted to detail. But here's a harvest they, in their bureaucracy, could not record. Too much to count. And Joseph himself is fruitful. He has two kids. God has made me forget my affliction. God has made me fruitful. What, what, a, what a whole world of meaning in those names. And then in time, the years of famine begin. Verse 54, they begin to come. You see, I think for us, it's hard to recognize the famine. I think the one thing we had in our stores for a month or so at the beginning of the pandemic that was a famine was a famine of toilet paper. Think how privileged that is. Think how uh, rich that tells us our world is. The thing we run out of is toilet paper. But you've seen the pictures. The pictures from the kids who have distended bellies, stick-like legs, eyes that are big, they beg for food. That's famine. We're told of famines in this time where they ate the roadkill. Horrific. Awful. Tragic. Not just a Bible times tale. It happens today. It's stressed in verse 40, uh, 53 to 57. We're told repeatedly, famine, famine, severe famine, really severe famine, not a good thing, bad famine. But in the whole land of Egypt, verse 54, in the land of Egypt, there was bread. And really the key verse in the whole chapter is this one, verse 55 the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. What does Pharaoh say? This is the key word. 
Go to Joseph. Do what he says to you. Go to him. Do what he says. You see what this is, friends? Here's a man who is exalted. He feeds them all. He feeds all the world. All the nations come to Egypt to buy grain. There's enough for all who are starving. They come for life to God's chosen man. And God's chosen deliverer has abundance for them. And his rule and his dominion, they came through suffering. They came through humility. He was counted as a slave, but he was raised on high. I hope you've heard a story like this one. I mean, this is clearly and obviously the story of Jesus Christ. This is the story of your Savior. Therefore, it's your story as a Christian. This is your story. You think of the dark world 1,500 years later, a world of spiritual famine. You have the light shining at Bethlehem. You have the baby coming into the world. You have the righteous Jesus suffering, being thrown not into a pit, but into death itself. And after a little while, God raised him up. God, the king of all the earth, gave him a name above every name that all should bow to him. And how does the Messiah use his power? How does Christ flex his muscles? He gives bread for the life of the world. You know, this is actually a very appropriate Christmas text. This is a very appropriate Christmas story. You know, the Savior was born in Bethlehem. Do you know what Bethlehem means? What it means? House of bread. House of bread. The Savior of all the earth arrives in the house of bread. The silo of bread, you might even say. And he provides life and bread for starving, needy souls. That's not a speculative reading. That's not me kind of imposing a grid on the Bible. Listen to what Christ says if you don't, if you don't want to listen to me. He says of himself, John 6. For the bread of life is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anybody eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Do you see your Savior here, friends? Do you see that this is the Christmas story? That Jesus Christ comes and he gives himself more than Joseph gave himself. He gives himself for the life of the world. He now has been raised, not to power in Egypt, but power over the whole universe. He lives to intercede for his people. He gives himself to all who come to him that they and you might live. So what does it mean for us? I think it means what I just said, but, but what's, the, what's the relevance for us in this text? I think first, it's an obvious relevance for us as Christians. This story right here. We are told to be patient in times of darkness, in times of waiting, in times of suffering. We are told, like Joseph, to be patient in waiting. That God governs all these things. That your trials are for a purpose. That if you're in a dungeon, God at the right time will bring you out of it. We are to humble ourselves, as Peter says, under God's mighty hand. That at the right time, he may lift up you. He cares for you. But second, it shows us the need to be prepared. When opportunity comes, be prepared. There are many needy people. This month especially, there are many people who can smile when the lights come on, and the trees look nice, and the songs are there, and then they go home. You know, we, we had a, a wonderful time last night. Lights and food and merriment and joy. And what happened on the car ride home? And what happened? You ought to go to bed. You got tired. What happened? The reality is we can have the joy. We can have the merriment. 
But the ache, the ache will be there. The ache will still be there. The dull sadness won't go away. And so you need to be ready for your family and friends. You need to be ready in this season. As Joseph was ready to speak to Pharaoh, as he brought God's word to Pharaoh, as his character added conviction, you would be ready. And that may mean you're promoted to more and more usefulness. It may, it may mean you're not promoted. But whatever it means, God will keep you safe. That's what Joseph said, right? He said, I can't do it, but God can. I'm not strong, but God's strong. Now, thirdly, of course, we see what I just mentioned. We see here a deeper resonance. We see a type of Christ. We live in a lost and confused and hurting world. We live in a world where thoughtful people look around and are disturbed by the problems of the planet. We live in a world where the leaders are are worried about the future, worried about the economy, worried about terrorism, worried about the environment, worried about disease, worried about war. What are they to do? And what are you to do? And what are your friends to do in the middle of your little worries? There is someone who can help. There is someone who can help. We live in the South. That means we live in a Jesus-haunted area. We live in a world where there are fragments of Jesus. There are cultural memories of daddy and granddaddy at church. They have memories of a suffering servant. They have fragments. They have puzzle pieces of the one who was humiliated and yet is now exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus haunts their memories. And the Jesus that haunts their memories is the one who holds the whole world in his hands. That's why nobody lifts hands or foot, hand or feet apart from his authority. So your message has to be this Christmas. What is the Christmas message? It's Pharaoh to Joseph. Go to Jesus. Do what he tells you. Come to Jesus. This is a come to Jesus sermon. Come to Jesus. There's only one who can help you. There's only one who can provide for you. There's only one who can answer your anxieties. He is in power. He is ready to provide. He has life for the whole world. He is the bread of life. He has ample provision, more than all you need and can imagine. And he doesn't just have enough for you. But he has something better than that. He has deep joy. Centuries later, at a Galilee village called Cana, what's the first miracle Christ does? The first miracle Christ does is not a miracle of bread. But needy people were told to go to Jesus. And what were they told to do? The same words Pharaoh uses. Go to him and do whatever he tells you. And what did Christ do? He gave wine. He gave joyful Fruit from the harvest. And now as as his followers, you can bear much fruit. This season, this year, this week, this month. Not just for yourself. But as your life is hidden in Christ, when you suffer, you suffer for the life of the world. I wonder if you ever believe. As we close here. I wonder if you ever actually believe. Because I barely do. If you ever actually believe that your suffering is not just a personal thing you have. We speak so much about our pains, our own sufferings, our own issues. Ah, I'm going through this. I just need a little help. I wonder if you realize that your suffering is not simply personal for yourself, but it's for the sake of the body of Christ, for the whole world. That's why Paul can say, I rejoice in my suffering for the sake of the church. So go to Jesus. Go to him, the source of all we need, the bread for the life of the world. Let's pray. O oh, great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you give us bread, that you fill our bellies, and yet you 
supremely fill our souls, that you don't just fill us in good times, you fill us in suffering. You work and prepare us for the days to come, and not just for ourselves, but for your church, not just for your church, but for the whole world, we pray you would equip us this hour as you equip Joseph with your grace and your life and your bread. We pray for our conversations this week that we might receive from your hand and therefore give to others the bread you've given to us. Pray this in his name. Amen.